This episode of the No Film School podcast was brought to you by Elements, human-centered media storage. Check them out at elements.tv, the new centerpiece of your facility, which is so much more than just storage. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of October 22nd, 2020. I am writer and podcaster Charles Hain. I'm here with editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. This week, we are talking about renting your own movie theater for fun and, well, not profit. Uh, hopefully, the movie theater will profit. We are we have two tech stories this week. Uh, the iPhone bringing HDR 10-bit recording to uh, video makers everywhere and DJI coming out with a refresh of their very popular Ronin S and SC line, which is super cool. We've got all that and sort of a left field Ask No Film School that I'm really excited to dig into. And I know George is as well. All that this week on the No Film School podcast. All right. So our top story this week which was a huge story on the website, nofilmschool.com. And, you know, usually we don't, uh, it's not a big indicator. Like we're not usually like tracking hits in terms of what we're going to cover on the podcast, but something's, sometimes something is so big that we kind of have to talk about its bigness. Um, and that's the story of AMC is now renting out their theaters as well. Now, if you're a longtime listener of the show, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the fact that the smaller and decidedly weirder theater chain Alamo Drafthouse has already <laughs> been renting out their theaters. And like, I love Alamo Drafthouse. It's where I see most of my movies. There's one down the street. I like their chocolate chip cookies. Um, and it's great, but it's regional, small. It's not a weird little chains do stuff all the time. AMC and Regal are the two big behemoths, right? So the fact that the fact that Alamo is doing it is interesting, but not like news. The fact that AMC is doing it is news it is a big dominant player in this space nationwide all over the place and they are letting you rent out the theater for 99 bucks and that is for up to 20 people i think people are just like like this story just took off in the sense that people were sharing this with me who were not people i talked to about no film school or about like people are just randomly like whoa this is crazy you can rent amc theaters for 99 bucks it's just it's just something that like blew up that everybody's talking about or a lot of people in, in my community at least and i think part of it is just that people genuinely really want to go back to movie theaters and find a reason to go to a movie theater and it's a fun thing to do um i mean i know tons of people who are just talking about it like doing their own you know, people have been doing using uh, this this period under quarantine to do like kind of virtual watch party stuff. And I've been invited to many where it's like, hey, we're going to do we're all going to watch this and then like do it on Twitch or whatever. And, and commentary and movies, Mystery Science Theater 3000. It like we'll, we'll watch not the room, but, you know, something uh, cats or whatever. And everybody was like immediately glomming onto this idea of like, whoa, this is awesome. We could do this. And I think it just speaks to a couple things that have been missing lately. Going out and doing something, um, going out to a movie theater, doing something communal. And I think it points to that there is actually like still, even though we talk a lot about like all these signs that the, that the theatrical experience is going to suffer. 
that people still really love and value it. And I just think it means that there will be a place for it in our culture and that people love what it is. It's different and it's unique and, it, and it's not going to go away in entirety. It's going to shift in its role. And uh, that's kind of life affirming from a filmmaker standpoint, because I think that making movies for the theater is still really a cool thing, uh, a cool way to make a movie. And I think that it means that there's still reason to do that because there will be, there will be ways that I don't know if it'll be through these major chains or what, but there will be ways that, that people still uh, experience the movie in the theatrical setting. This is a sign, you know? Yeah. For me, it is definitely a sign that there's still a tremendous amount of hunger there to gather in a big room with a bunch of people, 20 being the biggest bunch we can do safely right now and watch things really big. I think that is an experience that, you know, we're not done with and that will continue to be something really important to our society in the next phase of whatever our society looks like. I also think it's a nice, I mean, you know, if uh, if anybody out there is a Stuart Brand fan, you might have read a book called How Buildings Learn. It's one of my favorite books. You guys should all check it out. And How Buildings Learn has this amazing sort of theory that the best buildings are the most adaptable buildings, that the buildings that really stand the test of time are the ones with like spaces that are easy to change from one thing to another as civilization keeps changing and evolving. So, you know, it's the most interesting spaces are sort of neutral when they're built, but then they last 200 years, whereas things that are very specifically built for one purpose are very hard to adapt. And one thing that we all know about movie theaters is that they are, you know, famously difficult to adapt to other things. Like even in New York city, we have all of these old movie theaters from the twenties and thirties, which weren't movie theaters for 20 years, but then they were a gospel church for 20 years. Cause that's pretty much the only thing you can do. And then and downtown LA has some of those as well. And then now they're getting turned back into movie theaters or museum pieces or something, because it's, it's really a space that you can't easily turn into condos. And yeah, I have a sad, sad footnote to that, but continue. Oh, so I mean, but it makes me happy that you can't, that it's difficult, not impossible. It's difficult to turn them into condos because it means that during times like this, there's the opportunity to say, all right, let's figure out other ways to make movie theaters stay what they are and make money as opposed to let's just give up and turn them into condos because we've had a bad year. And I think a lot of other things about civilization where there's a dip, where there's like a two year problem with something or a a five year pause where it's like, oh, we're not doing that for this five years. All of the sudden, it's really easy to turn it into other things. And I think, you know, beautifully movie theaters, the way the buildings are built, they are really only sort of good for church and then modern church which is cinema attendance yeah and i think that <laughs> yeah uh, it's really like a rewarding wonderful thing about movie theaters that they are like that and that it makes me excited for that because like you know a lot else when i think about what the next decade looks like a lot is going to change i think we're going to see a lot of commercial spaces return to residential or industrial like i look around manhattan i mean i haven't been into manhattan lately but i look out the window and i can see it across the river and i think about all of the office space that's going to be empty for the next decade and there's going to be you know in the 90s there was that whole aesthetic of like our office is like a cool hip arty office in a former industrial space and it's like brick (laughs) walls and and i think we're gonna have the flip of that whereas in 10 years it's like oh my like med tech startup is in a former office space and so it's going to be like the opposite aesthetic where instead of the background being industrial and the foreground being office now the foreground is going to be industrial but like modern computer 3d printing industrial and the background is going to be like 90s cubicle aesthetic 
Is so, it like, funny? It's it's funny. Like there, I have I have a lot of things I want to add, but it's funny to me to think that the show, The Office, or the movie Office Space are going to become relics of an era where people like it won't be too long from now. Like it'll be the generation of our kids, basically. That are like that is so weird, like unrelatably weird, <laughs> like office culture, like what oh, people yeah. aren't going to do that anymore. Like, and that, that whole thing is going away. And it's funny. Like, I, I mean, I don't know. Uh, I know you're familiar, but if our audience has seen the movie, the apartment, it's, it's based around office culture. I mean, it's just a classic, great movie. That's why part of why it comes to mind, but it, it's based around office culture in like 1960, which believe, which is quite different than office culture in like 1998 or 2010 or 2020. But uh, again, it's like office culture has been kind of a mainstay for a while, and it's definitely going to seem super alien um, in the, to the coming generations. Uh, they won't get the jokes. Isn't that weird? Uh, I, but I, yeah, there's I, not a, like the entirety of the office. If I remember correctly, there's not a teleconferencing joke. There's not yeah, a Zoom right. call. 30 Rock did have one. 30 Rock had one when Jack Donaghy got bedbugs. They installed video conferencing technology so that people wouldn't have to be in a room with him because he had bedbugs. But that's 30 Rock. I don't think the office had any of that. And no, so in, in a all weird about, way. Yeah, it was all about what it, what is the experience of being the majority of your life stuck in a space with these people that, you know, this mock that family that you didn't choose in this in this drab, unpleasant, you know, but universal you know, physical space that anyone who's worked in an office at all experienced it. It's just like it's it's going to vanish. Zoom culture as humor is going to be a whole new thing. I was just going to say, it's so funny you say that about the movie theater and how buildings learn is because there's a number of former theaters in my city, in Santa, city of Santa Monica, where I can remember what they were like as theaters and I've seen them be transformed into businesses and it just doesn't work. And it's always unpleasant. Like one AMC uh, that I used to go to as a kid for years is now like a massive Victoria's Secret. But what's so weird about it is it's not a good space for that. Like it just doesn't work. Uh, <laughs> and and there's another one that turned into a shoe store. And we went, this is the saddest one because it's, it's a meme. But we went into one the other day because my kids wanted Halloween costumes and it's a spirit of Halloween which as you know, anybody internet culture wise is what immediately occupies something that is vacant or going out of business. But there are, there's no question the space was meant for something else. And I think that, uh, I think you're going to see crop up my prediction, which, you know, worth nothing, but I think we're going to see more of those little kind of uh, craft small business models for movie theaters pop up in the spaces that show things like special runs available for engagements available for screenings you know that kind of thing is just going to be the model and i think it'll do well because i think people really value it i also think i mean if there's one thing that alamo has proven is that you know when i was young there were multiplexes, which had 12 theaters and showed stuff that I wasn't as interested in. And then there were art houses that had one screen. Sometimes they were a big old place that had been converted to have two screens, but there was never, like in the 90s, you never saw a cool movie in a movie theater that had more than one screen. Like that yes. just wasn't the way it worked. And Alamo really proved there's enough people into cool movies. You can build a theater that has 12 screens and fill 10 of them with cool movies, two of them with a blockbuster, which may or may not be cool. I'm not saying all blockbusters are bad. There's many blockbuster yeah. movies I've enjoyed, but most are crap. And um, 
or most are just not interesting is the biggest yeah, problem. Yeah, it's like that. It's just, yes. I know, yeah. Yeah. But there are, every once in a while, there's one that I like still think about years later. Um, so it's just a, it's a, it's a dry formula that occasionally has spice in it. Look, AMC and Regal are obviously going to have to sell off some real estate and restructure at some point. They're going to reduce their size, concentrate on their highest earning places. But what's interesting about that to me is like one thing I do think is going to happen and you know, I can say this with some knowledge because I worked from home for a couple of years and my wife has worked from home for the last six years is when I had an office job with a commute, I was way less willing to get adventurous in the evening. Once I got home from my commute, I wasn't willing to drive an hour somewhere interesting in the evening. I was like, I'm not getting back in the car. I do it on a Saturday, but not on a Thursday night. If we're all working from home, that desire to do something out on a Thursday and being willing to drive or travel for it is, I think, going to be more interesting. And so I think there's going to be an opportunity for a like a multiplex an AMC that's like an hour outside the major town, but mm. AMC sells it off because they're not making money and a bunch of local people buy it and they're like, we're going to put weird ass cool shit in here. And then because you didn't commute an hour each way during the day, you're willing to drive then an hour outside Chicago, an hour outside Cleveland, an hour out into Long Island to see something truly weird and interesting in a movie theater setting on an, a weeknight that you would normally never be willing to do because you're so tired from the commute. So I think, I mean, look, we don't know what's going to happen next, but I think that um, I'm so glad movie theaters don't convert well into Victoria's Secrets. I'm so glad <laughs> AMC is trying to figure out a way to make it going. But I also think that like, you know, I think that there's going to be real opportunities to get a couple of multiplexes cheap and, um, I think that's interesting. And I think interesting things will happen when you can do that. And there'll be interesting models that happen because of that. And I think that'll be really fascinating. So I'm really, you know, I'm glad. I, I hope A&T and Regal will survive. I've seen a lot of great movies in both chains and I have nothing uh, personal against either of them. But I think when they reduce inventory, there's going to be these really cool opportunities. And I hope some of it is weirdos taking over multiplexes and being like, why can't we just have a weirdo multiplex? And I'm sure some of them will be one of them. Actually, there's a one in Greenpoint that is a uh, it's a CVS now. And you walk in and you're like, there's a movie theater. Yeah. I'm gonna get mouthwash. <laughs> I just look, I like we've talked about it so many times, but I've, I've always loved the new Beverly Theater. I love oh, the arrow and the so Egyptian. Much. And I think that like if, if, you know, the movie theater real estate around around some of where you and I are is like crazy expensive. So it makes sense that like all these little ones might not make it. But Man, I would love to own and operate just like an old theater that was somewhere, and I'd run stuff. I, I, you know, get a get prints you can get your hands on, and like, or rent it out to like film schools, or like, or to no film school, or to whoever. Yeah. Like, let people use it on off nights, but then on like, on heavily on big nights on Friday and Saturday, like screen some stuff that you can get your hands on that people are going to want to pay, you know, not even that much money for. Like, I just think it would be awesome. I hope. Like, I hope enterprising folks out there look at it as an opportunity. Like, uh, I don't know, like the, the the business of the craft movie theater, I think, could be really cool as like a little thing that happens. But let's see. Let's see. It could be interesting. Yeah. In, in, in the world after times. All right. On to tech news. So uh, we are not quite at the hardware cycle where the hardware is starting to reflect COVID. We're totally already seeing software reflect COVID. We've seen updates as early as May and definitely by July and August where I'm like, oh, you rewrote this after COVID happened. We can tell. But 
we're still in that place where most hardware designs are pre-COVID. So this is probably our last pre-COVID Apple iPhone discussion. Um, I can guarantee you on the No Film School podcast for fall of 21, provided we're still doing this podcast and the world still exists and we haven't been flooded or locusts don't come in December or who knows what. Um, <laughs> we'll be talking about an iPhone that has some covid stuff in it. I guarantee you the iPhone 13, or it'll be probably the 14, most people skip 13, will have like, a thing that does face ID through your face mask and a thing that takes your temperature and all sorts of like health stuff. I'm sure iPhone 14, they're working on that now. But iPhone 12 is this weird little window. It just came out. We're six months into this pandemic, but like six months is not that long in hardware. So there's not like any, it doesn't, it feels like, oh, this is probably what you were planning to release anyway, which is kind of like a nice little like, oh, a, a little window in what could have happened in 2020 if 2020 hadn't been 2020. And uh, so the iPhone 12 release came out this week. That was a long intro, but I hope you all enjoyed it. I really did. And uh, the iPhone uh, 12 has a cool, a few really interesting new features that it is uh, important that filmmakers know about. The first thing filmmakers should know about is there's a new photography mode, Apple Pro Raw, which is raw capture for still photo. Now, obviously... Filmmakers mostly understand the difference between raw video and processed video, but we'll give a quick summary just to be really, um, just to be thorough. So, you know, when you're shooting with a camera, you set things like white balance and ISO in your menus. And all of that takes the data off the sensor. It doesn't change the sensor. The data coming off the sensor is the same. It processes that data coming off the sensor into an image you can view using ISO and white balance and tint. So you can have a nice looking image and then it saves it. And that's what most cameras save. That's what, you know, most video cameras save a processed image. A raw image just takes that sensor data and records it without that processing. And this is beneficial because then you can change ISO and white balance in post. If you want, you can re-manipulate that data later and do new, interesting, cool things with it. However, the flip side, there's always a flip side. The files are usually bigger. Not always. There's some tricks to compress it, but there's some patents around that that make it hard for everybody to do it. But usually it's a little bigger and a little more processor intensive to deal with. So you don't tend to see raw in phones. Every camera has a raw mode now, but I mean, you know, like every stills camera and motion picture camera, 5,000 and up, you've got some way of shooting raw. And the nice thing about it is if you weren't perfect on set with setting your white balance, if you were a little off, you can just tweak that white balance in post and you get a lot more flexibility. Um, we've done some tests that are up at nofilmschool.com where, you know, we compared normal ProRes and ProRes raw, and we deliberately shot things with the wrong white balance and the wrong ISO. And we pushed them around in post and man, ProRes raw really opened up a whole lot more room before artifacting. You really could recover much more than you can out of plain old ProRes. So Pro raw is the new Pro raw format for stills in the iPhone 12. This is a good sign that we will probably eventually have a way of doing raw video on the motion side. Um, this is something that aftermarket apps will probably take advantage of. Like Filmic Pro will be working with Apple, I'm sure, to give you some sort of raw flavor. But as of right now, it's just a stills thing. Uh, all of the press around it is just promoting stills. However, they're not leaving video makers out. They made a short film with Emmanuel Lubezki, also known as Chivo, huge cinematographer, um, shot so many great movies uh, that everybody loves, the titles of all of which are escaping me right now. Gravity is one that comes to mind. Many, many other movies, really talented cinematographer, wonderful work, shot a short film on the iPhone 12. And the big marquee feature here is 10-bit HDR. So what's HDR? HDR is high dynamic range. 
And that means there's a wider spread between the shadows and the highlights in the image. And I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say HDR is more useful and interesting than 4K. I have a 50-inch TV at home. I have a 20-foot screen at the office. And I regularly show tests to students where they can't tell the difference between 2K and 4K on a 20-foot screen. Um, and on my 50-inch screen, I can regularly, like I switch between 1080 and, and 4K UHD all the time in terms of the media I'm sourcing. And it's very hard to see the difference on those screen sizes. Um, 2K and 4K are not that radically visually different, but standard dynamic range and high dynamic range are noticeably different. And something that's properly mastered for high dynamic range, that's captured with that range of tones and then released with that range of tones, if it's done right, um, and I'm actually going to say uh, Shaun the Sheep, the Shaun the Sheep movie, I recently watched that with my daughter in uh, high dynamic range. Um, beautiful high dynamic range work. I want to find out who did it and really compliment them. It was some of the best HDR stuff I had seen. Shaun the Sheep is a, a, a children's cartoon, but I mean a children's anima uh, animation, really great. Um, so the iPhone has high dynamic range and a high dynamic range screen. And so they're, they're touting that it's the first end-to-end -end solution where you can both shoot and view high dynamic range imagery. And I think that's really interesting because what's fascinating is a lot of people out there doing high dynamics range shooting are still working with standard dynamic range monitors, right? Every monitor has like a fancy HDR preview mode that's like showing you your tones, map down to SDR, whatever. But like a lot of field monitors until a year or two ago didn't even do high dynamic range. And the ones that do are super expensive. So, so many productions are out there shooting, but they're not actually previewing in high dynamic range while they work. So, this is the first end-to-end -end solution where they're like, you can you can shoot at HDR, edit at HDR on the phone, show at HDR on the phone, and the whole pipeline is all together for this wider dynamic range of imagery, which I think is a really interesting sort of pipeline. Um, the short film Chivo shot is very beautiful. Um, you can still see it still looks like a phone. Like it, it is beautiful phone imagery, but you know, it's not. Do we know if he used, uh, do we know if he used like filmic? Is there any information on what tools he used along with it? Like there is not, I would assume filmic pro just cause everybody uses filmic pro and I can't imagine, but maybe he just shot it with the native modes. Um, and you know, the, the main thing that makes gimbals it look a little and such and like, other I tools, mean, there's like, gimbals, there's drone shots that are yeah. from the iPhone 12 where they rig it to a drone. I mean, they, they had all of the toys. Um, and obviously you have lighting control for dynamic range. You have all of those things. So, yeah, you know. I find that to be, you know, I enjoy when, when they drop these, uh, videos from filmmakers that snow fight one who did that ryan johnson i can't remember now but no, ryan johnson did paris the snow fight was oh, the director right. of uh, john wick oh yeah 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 uh i think you're right there's this thing that like look i if i can speak about it from a non-filmmaker standpoint i want to know what i want to know is like how much better is this than the one i have and what i also want to know when i see the, the videos they drop is like what can I do? Like if you're shooting, like if what, what Lubetsky's shooting with his and all the tools he has available and even apps that maybe I don't know how to use. Like, I want to know, like, all right, like say I take just my phone out and I want to shoot some video and I want to like, I want to see the best version of that and, and side by side. And like, I think that they, 
I think what's would be useful for people or imagery, like, you know, show me what the, and I'm not asking you, Charles, to show me, but I'm saying like, it would be nice to see, um, and this is something we should, we should do for our, or our community should, should show us and, and we will share if you do it. But I want to see like, show me what it's like when you take photos on the 11 and then show me the photos on the 12th and show me what the high dynamic range, like of the same setup and show me what it's, what's different and show me what I'm missing out on if I don't get it or show me what, uh, you know, how it changes. Like we, we really, we, we get the information, we release it, we tell people what, what the specs are and we tell them what the changes are going to be, but it's really hard to quantify it until you can compare it to what you've had. Um, and what you're, using so many well, i have an iphone 11 so if there's any of our listeners in new york who have already gotten the 12 i'm getting the 12 just not until november or december but if anybody's already gotten the 12 in new york and wants to do a shootout i'm happy to meet socially distance in a park and do some side by sides i think that could be super fun because yeah i mean for me testing is everything like yeah. i love watching these other films that the other filmmakers do um but until, you know, everything I'm going to use on a project myself, I want to do tests myself because there's something about like, I see what it looks like with my eye and I see what the image reproduces in the thing that I learn from um, that I think is really useful. And I also learn a lot from before and afters. Apparently they did a lot of work with bringing night mode and low light imagery to all of the settings. So I think we are going to see a better low light camera, which is super exciting. Um, and when you HDR, say testing is everything, you're echoing something that every cinematographer I've ever known worked with or interviewed. And that includes like when you add an interview, it includes a lot of like serious players. Like they always say that because it's true. Like you, you don't know until you, and so for us, for everybody else to get a sense of like, what is it, what can it do? We want to see a test and we want to see like, this is what it was like under these circumstances with these settings. Like, and this is what it was like under these circumstances with these settings. And then we can say like, Oh, I see. I like that. Or I don't really get it. Like it's not, it's not making enough. It's not going to move the needle for me, you know? And I, I think it would help us all gauge, you know, what, what the leap really is beyond the, the spec sheet. Absolutely. And then the last of the features that I think are interesting to filmmakers, and this is actually the one I'm probably most excited about um, because I've gone down a previs rabbit hole lately, is they've included a LiDAR camera in the um, and improved it dramatically. So LiDAR is, is laser radar and um or laser yeah laser radar is a good way to think about it and it's invisible wavelengths lasers but what it does is it measures spaces very accurately and shapes so there's already some really great uh reality tools even built in the iphone 11 where there's like a virtual tape measure for measuring spaces and stuff that i've used for very rough calculations but as we you know as we get into the habit of doing spaces, like for instance, now part of what well, I teach at this little school called the Fierstein Graduate School of Cinema and part of our COVID safety protocols are there's minimum square footage requirements per person for the crew. If you're going out on a shoot and you're going to have five total people allowed, there's you have to have a certain square footage per person. Now, there's a lot of ways we can check that. We ask to see, we can ask to see people's leases. We can ask to see all that kind of stuff. But I also think that it's going to be a, a habit filmmakers get into now when you go to a space, in addition to the other shots you're shooting of a space that you're documenting its current state for insurance purposes, you, um, you're, you know, because if there's scratches on the floor already, you want to document that they were there before you arrived so that people don't try and blame it on you, that kind of thing. Like 
one piece of advice every time you get to a new location to shoot shoot a bunch of stills of how it looks right now before you shoot <laughs> always good coverage everybody should be in that habit it's just a good part of having a camera in your pocket all the time but now i think we're going to be in the habit of one of the things we do on location scouts is a, is a quick lidar scan of a room so that we can make a square footage map of exactly what the square footage is on every space so that we can do our calculations working with our certified certified covid officers to say how many people we're going to be allowed to have in this space right like because the lease might say, oh, it's a 900 square foot space, but you get in there and the lease is wrong. It's a 700 square foot space. Maybe you can have less people in the room and, and we all want to be safe. So I think this LIDAR tool set and the increasing sophistication of tools for mapping spaces and interacting digitally with spaces and recording spaces, I think is going to start to have a lot of applications for physical production going forward. But also as we start to see more, you know, one thing that happens, one thing that's been happening to me for three or four years now is instead of doing full on pickup shots where we go back to the location, we'll do our pickup shots on a green screen and we'll pulp, you know, every shot you do on a film, you should shoot empty, right? Like if I'm doing a setup, I always do at least a second or 10 seconds of it with all the actors out of it. So I have it as a background plate if I need to do a pickup later and being able to do a quick LIDAR scan of the room so that I can remember where all the lights are and all of that and exactly how far away they were from certain things just helps me document everything I'm doing so that as we move into virtual production and post, doing pickups and things like that later, there's uh, a lot of ease of use possibilities that come from that. So I think this is going to be a tool, um, even if you are not using it as your A camera on a job, I think the tools that are starting to get integrated, especially with the iPhone 12, I think you're going to see a lot of that become super useful to filmmakers going forward. Elements Bolt is a groundbreaking storage solution, offering up to 10 times the speed of an SSD-based system. Designed to deliver amazing performance to every department in your facility, from scanning to color grading, editing, VFX, and GFX, Elements Bolt will put an end to stuttering playback, slow copying, or proxy creation for offline editing. This flexible, high-speed storage platform can supercharge any professional post-production environment and even provides native Avid bin locking functionality. Every Elements system is jam-packed with amazing tools and features developed to help with day-to-day post-production tasks. The extremely intuitive user interface is designed with creative people in mind and can easily be used with little to no IT knowledge. Ready to boost your performance? Find out more at elements.tv bolt. And then the other tech news this week, DJI released upgrades to the Ronin S and SC line of uh, gimbals. There's now the Ronin S2 and the Ronin SC2. The big difference is size. The Ronin S is the bigger one. The Ronin SC is smaller. The weight limit on the Ronin S is up to 10 pounds. I think it's six pounds on the SC2. I'm going to look it up while we're talking. And um, if you don't know these gimbals, Ronin is in an interesting position in a lot of places in the film industry. The people who did it first are the people who really own a market. So, you know, you can think about this in so many different places where it's like, oh, you guys were the first people to do X and we still associate you with X. Movi are the people who really came out first with the gyro stabilized gimbals. That first video Movi did where like the camera's going in and out of a 
cab and then upstairs and all of this stuff. Like everybody watched it. Everybody was talking about it for two weeks. I couldn't go anywhere without people being like, did you see the movie video? And movie's still around and movie's still very dominant at the high end and very competitive at the high end. But at the indie level, at the like under a thousand dollars level, DJI completely owns that market. Um, there are competitors. Zian makes some nice stuff. And um, there is uh, Moza from Goodson has some nice gimbals. So there's some stuff in the like five or $600 range that is equally nice. And I actually think Manfrotto has something out now that's interesting. But DJI is the dominant person, dominant company in this marketplace in the under $1,000 stabilizer, the stabilizer you're going to be using with your DSLR, the, you know, all of the cameras we've been talking about this year of exciting cameras, the S1H from Panasonic, the R5 from Canon, the, um, the new, uh, C70 from Canon, all of these guys, if you're going to go take it out on a stabilizer, it's probably going to be DJI. And so it's going to be either a Ronin S or if you can get the package small enough, a Ronin SC. And uh, so what are the big new advances that came out with this second generation? So there's a couple. The Both of them are lighter weight. They're using a lot more carbon fiber. They shaved like a third of the weight off the Ronin S, which is amazing. It's uh, They lost 1.3 pounds. So it went from like 4.1 pounds to 2.8 pounds, which is crazy. And it, But it's important to remember that like, you know, people are doing these long action shots with it where they're holding the camera for three minutes, rolling down a mountain or climbing upstairs. So every pound you can lose is important. But on top of that, while losing all that weight, they all, they also added a little LCD screen. So you can either see framing of the shot. It would be really small, or you can see camera data, or you can see gimbal data and stabilization data and all like all of that, which is really nice. It also means that it has its own active track. So one of the cool features of the SC in the last generation is you could mount your phone to it and sync your phone up to the gimbal and then use the face identification algorithm in your phone to drive active track. So I'm holding the gimbal and I don't have to worry about pan and tilt to hold my actor in frame. I just have to hold the gimbal in space. And then I tap on my phone on the actor's face and they use the phone's algorithm to find the face. And then they keep panning and tilting the camera to keep the shot perfectly framed as you move around a huge, huge benefit that's, when you're doing these crazy action shots. That's some crazy high tech shit. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. It's, re- it's <laughs> really ridiculous. <laughs> um, the other thing that isn't getting enough press in my opinion is they've added um, one of the nice things with the Ronin S and the Ronin SC is they had really nice integrated uh, follow focus system. So to follow focus motor, you put a, uh, you put a ring on your lens and it's built into the gimbal natively. You don't have to have an external and you can have a little knob on the gimbal or you can have someone else doing it. Um, and it worked really well. And, you know, follow focus in a, in a, is often sort of a hiccup thing to figure out in this situation. And it's nice that they integrated it. And now it's dual axis. So you can do focus and zoom or focus and iris. Um, or you could do iris and zoom if your focus is going to stay in the same place, but that's unlikely. You're most likely going to either do focus and zoom, or to be honest, I'm seldom going to do a zoom on a gimbal. I've done it. I'm, it's not my default, usually in a gimbal. If I need to reframe, I'm on a gimbal. I can push in, I can push out. We can move around in space. The zoom isn't always what I'm going for, but I tell you what I need to do all the time is rack aperture, right? You're, you're doing a shot, you're starting inside and you're going outside, or it's as simple as like the whole thing's outside, but the sun's going in and out of clouds and the ability to have iris control. So you could do a a two axis thing where you have focus and iris rings and you can rack them both while you are going is going to be a huge, huge benefit. And this is the kind of thing that we used to 
you know, 10 years ago, we were like renting extra motors and extra things. And one person was on Iris and one person was on Focus and one person was on Steadicam. And like, it was very complicated and expensive. And now for a very reasonable price, the fact that you can get a 10 pound camera, which means you could get like a C70 with a Cinema Prime, rig it all up on a Ronin S2 and have Focus and Iris control is amazing. Um, you know, they've also done a whole lot of improvements. The gimbals now learn about the operator. So they sort of build operator profiles to get a sense of what you like so that it can sort of predict a little bit better what kind of operating you like, which I think is going to be very interesting. Um, I mean, operators do have personalities, so it'll be interesting to see if that works. I've worked with some things where profiling has worked well. Um, I've never worked with like a, a stabilizer where profiling works, but um, that is sort of the exciting things that are coming with the uh, the big revision out of DJI. So they're on fire. And then they like also this week came out with a new 4K Osmo. So they're like, they're releasing a whole ton of stuff. They're, they're, they're keeping up. I'd and their battery that. life is I'm, I'm improved. Making, yeah. It went from it, eight hours to 12 hours. And I wonder how accurate that is to perform to like how it actually performs. Cause I, seeing some comments certainly in the no film school community that suggest people have uh not experienced promised battery life but uh i'm gonna say this i have never in my entire life there's two things i've never experienced promised battery life and promised dynamic range ever (laughs) that's a good disclaimer so um i've never no manufacturer has ever accurately told me either of those things Um, the first thing I would do if I bought a Ronin S or an S2 would be to buy a spare battery. Like that's just, I think it's, I don't think it's that expensive. You keep the spare on the charge and then you can just shoot all day. I know that they're promising the 12 hour battery life, which means you can just shoot all day on one battery. Doesn't seem crazy to go into a situation and be like, well, yeah, no, it's said in the spec sheet, 12 hours. Like I'll show up at call time and I don't need another battery. (laughs) Just like the idea of someone doing that. (laughs) Yeah. It's, uh, there's that great ad from the eighties where Nicola Pecorini had, he laid out his entire kit in the ad. I forget if it was an ad for Nicola Pecorini or an ad for some piece of gear he owned, but for the ad in American cinematographer, he laid out every single thing he owned. He was a steady cam operator in the eighties. He went on to be a DP. He shot a lot with Terry Gilliam, Nicola Pecorini's great. Um, and literally one of the beauties of the ad was everything was doubled. So it was a symmetrical ad of like, yeah. Every single piece he brought to set, he had two. Yeah. And, you know, steady cam operator, like there were two arms, there were two vests, there were two, <laughs> all of the cheese plates, all of the things. It was everything. And he was like, this is what I bring to set. Um, and, you know, th- that is, I think that's reasonable with batteries. I think that's yeah. okay. If batteries don't last quite as long as they say they're going to. I mean, maybe it's an Overton window thing. Maybe I've just gotten used to being treat, treated poorly by lying battery specs. And so I don't expect better. Maybe well, I you make a great battery. point. I mean, I always see the battery life and I always think, yeah, not really, though. Like, I don't know yeah. why, but not really. Like every every device or thing I've ever owned is like how how many. I mean, I got I got to have iPhone chargers like pretty much every 10 feet. I go in the world because I'm constantly going to need to charge the thing again. Whatever they tell me the battery life is, it's it's going to need charging all day or at various random times. Yeah, you know, it is what it is. But I think I, I think I, I just bring it up because I saw it and I thought that feels like a big 
like 12 hours is a big uh, promise, but it, again, I, I'm sure it's not entirely realistic. I mean, I think that probably depends on you use too, right? Like yeah, how much you're using I it in 12 hours. I guarantee you there have been shoots in the history of mankind where it lasted 12 hours where you you had a very light camera on there because light cameras don't stress the battery as much and you had everything perfectly balanced, which doesn't stress the battery as much. And you were doing a reasonable number takes spread over 12 hours. I guarantee you there's a way you can make it last 12 hours. If you have a slightly misbalanced camera that is exactly 10 pounds, which is the weight limit, and you are shooting nonstop, are you going to get 12 hours? Hells no. Nor should you kind of expect to get 12 hours if that is your situation. Um, you know, heavy camera is going to burn battery power more. Constant shooting is going to burn battery power more. And it's, I think it's okay. I think you should just have a spare battery. That's sort of my take on it. But maybe I've, maybe I've been done too wrong by battery makers. Maybe I need to have higher expectations. All right, moving on. We have the strangest, it might not be the strangest Ask No Film School, but I kind of liked this Ask No Film School. Um, and so we are going to do an Ask No Film School. And the Ask No Film School is uh, from Vladimir Bilik. So Vladimir Bilik asks, what's the most complex character arc hidden in an otherwise passable film? And I think passable is meant to be an insult here. I think passable is meant to be like, this movie's not very good. And because um, passable, sometimes you're like, oh, that movie's passable. Like, uh, you know, it's a perfectly fine Saturday afternoon, um, you know, lays about watching a movie with the folks movie, which is different than a like bad movie. Um, but um, Vladimir <laughs> was watching The Thaw starring Val Kilmer and discussed and discovered that even though the movie was mostly passable, which I think the way Vladimir is describing it means pretty bad. I think he's using passable differently than I'm using it. He he's meaning Val like Kilmer's, he's, he's meaning like pass or fail grade wise. I think when he's yes, or like passable, like you could walk past it on the street and just pass it and not stop. Could be that like too. if you're channel surfing, you could yeah. just pass it. And like, I think that's, I think that's anyway, that's semantics. But he really liked Val Kilmer's character arc, which I think is like a very interesting observation. So we wanted to talk a little bit in our deep cuts this week about movies that are either famously not very good or are actually not very good, but in which we think there is something worth engaging with or exploring and thus worth watching. Okay, so the biopic genre is a genre that tends to win a lot of awards. But a genre which is famously like plagued with problems and kind of terrible. For me, the best example of this is something like The Iron Lady. You know, Meryl Streep, the best actor of the last 50 years. Like, I love, you know, like the, the Academy Awards should really be three categories because Meryl Streep should just get to win her own category. And it's unfair to put people up against her. She's so good. You watch a movie um, like Robert Altman's last movie or pretty much anything she's in and she's just magic. But she had this movie called The Iron Lady and it was just screaming garbage. And it was just because it was like a shitty biopic of a terrible person and there was nothing to redeem her. I mean, Margaret Thatcher is evil and there was nothing in it to redeem <laughs> Margaret Thatcher. And, you know, they took frequently, there's a framing device in a biopic where you have like the opening scene and the ending scene is them like old reckoning with their life. And they spent half the movie at that half. The movie is her wandering around her apartment, old reckoning with her life, half the movie. And I'm like, no, 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 no. this is bookends. It's a mess. That movie's awful. Um, 
biopics are often very bad. I'm not alone in having the opinion that many biopics are not very good. Even though Meryl Streep is, even in The Iron Lady, she actually gives a great performance. It's just structured wrong, that movie. Um, However, there's a biopic that everyone I know but me hates. And I've had many conversations with perfectly smart friends about this biopic where they're like, it, it suffers from all of the problems of a biopic. And the problems of a biopic are, are screenwriting problems fundamentally, which is that the things that make movies interesting in a screenplay, the tension, the mystery, the suspense, the structure, the, you know, the character reveals the change, those things aren't real, right? Like most lives are not built around a 3X structure. So, you know, there's, that's the beauty of Bojack Horseman is how desperately Bojack Horseman wants the credits to roll and to have a sense of resolution in his life. But that's not how life works. It keeps going. Um, and so it makes biopics really hard. But there's a biopic called Blow by a director called Ted Demi. Many mm, people I, I know that, think maybe. it is not a very strong movie. But first off, the cinematography by Ellen Curris. It's worth it to watch Ellen Curris alone. Ellen Curris and it's peak Ellen Curris. I mean, she's one of my favorite working DPs. Um, and it's really Ellen Curtis at like the top of her skills in terms of like identifying images to tell the story. It's such good work. She shot a lot with Sp- Spike Lee. She's mostly a director now. She's phenomenal. Go watch Blow just for her work alone. But I also think Blow does get into character development for the character, the the lead character, George Young, um, in a way that I think is really interesting and that the... You know, there is a there's sort of a shallow drug dealer character who is where we don't really understand why they did what they did. And I think that there is an attempt to reckon with some sort of like innocent childhood and a and a lust for money to overcome insecurity and and parental um strife that doesn't feel Freudian but actually feels like real and interesting and rewarding for me. Um, I think the ending is a little too sentimental. I think the ending attempts to redeem a character that doesn't actually get redemption. Um, but it, it features a lot of phenomenal performances and, uh, it really tries to reckon with like the concept of what friendship means in the middle of these dramatic situations. And I think that there's a lot of really interesting character development in a movie that some people Frankly, I feel like I'm alone in liking Blow, which is weird because I actually think it made some good money. Um, but like, I've never met anyone else who's like, "Oh yeah, Blow." But like, I, you know, I watch it every three or four years, and wow. I think yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting yeah, I'm, movie. I remember seeing it at the time in the theaters, yeah. no less. So I think that is my answer for you for a passable movie with interesting character development. Well, I think uh, it's it's just really hard for me to check off both of these boxes. So I have to apologize to the question asker, but I love the question. And part of why I wanted us to address it is because uh, it's just an it, it's uh, it's asking us to stretch a little bit. And it's I think it's putting us all in a position where we think about, like, what makes a character arc complex? So I have an answer that I think is like I always so I always come to these two character arcs. I think they're very interesting in terms of screenwriting because they're movies where you're not thinking about character arcs and the character arcs aren't why anybody cares about the movie, but they do exist. <laughs> and these are these movies. Well, I'll start with the first one. I do consider it a passable movie in the sense, the original Jurassic Park. I know a lot of people think that that movie is, you know, a classic. I think it's like, it's okay. You know, it's not, I don't think it's phenomenal. I don't think it lived up to the 
to the material, the originally written material. But what I always think is funny about it is that it does have a character arc in it. And it's weird because, you know, it's a movie about dinosaurs and special effects and thrills. It's not a movie where you necessarily need that. But the character of Dr. Grant does go from being a guy who does not like kids <laughs> to a guy who has learned to really bond with these two kids. And I just think, now it's not complex by any stretch, but it is always interesting to me that at, inside that movie, they wove this character arc that is complete. That is just like a, an actually realized, like it plots along, like it hits all the beats. And uh, it's not the reason anybody remembers or loves the movie. It's not the reason anybody went to see the movie. But, you know, the first time we meet him, he's tormenting a kid because he can't stand him. And the last shot of the movie, he's like got the kid sleeping on him because he's been tormented, not just by dinosaurs, but by being a babysitter. Uh, and I just think that's I, I always think about that because it's like that's proof that you can always execute a simple character arc as kind of the skeleton of of your story. And another one that like, I don't know that this, I don't think this movie uh, qualifies as passable because it's an amazing movie that people talk about all the time. If anything, maybe we need to stop talking about how great it is. But Die Hard has, I think, an actually somewhat complex character arc. Uh, because again, you don't see that movie for the character. Um, and I'm also picking these movies because they're blockbusters. And we talked a little bit earlier about like blockbusters don't always have spice, you know, and stay with you. But I think in some instances, like you said, Charles, they do. Um, you know, if you were talking about Die Hard in like a screenwriting class, you would say uh, John McClane is dealing with this, all these issues of masculinity. Like that's at the heart of that movie. You know, his wife left him for a better job and she's off in a new city and he's trying to reclaim on some level his like manhood, his state of manhood and, you know, questions about or the ideas of like what we now call toxic masculinity and like he's man of the house, but that's been stripped of him because she's got a better job and a high paying job. And he's kind of like uh, he's a relic, you know, he's just a dinosaur in, in this modern world. And uh, yet this almost <clears throat> now you could almost see all of Die Hard as like a male fantasy of like how to reassert his role as like the alpha, because what could possibly happen in this world of offices where he doesn't belong in Los Angeles that could make this old fashioned tough guy suddenly seem so important? Well, terrorists could come. It's almost like a man fantasy, like, like daydreaming. Like you could turn that movie into a daydream that he had while he was sitting in her office. And then he come, wakes up and he goes out to the Christmas party where he doesn't belong. But I feel like that is a complex character arc. And at the end, the family unit is restored. Um, but at the beginning, it's fractured. And I think that there's a complex, you know, she, knows, she doesn't have his last name anymore. All these things. Uh, that I, I think it's actually more complex than people think, give it credit for, um, for being what is, you know, on the surface, a simple movie. The drama that you are creating by saying Die Hard is passable is <laughs> bold. I tried to, I tried to say it's not passable. I tried to say it's a great movie, but um, it's not. 
look, I'm not trying to be snobby, but it's not, um, it's pop, it's, it's movies as pop art, which I think we all would agree because we're, we're on a filmmaking podcast, but we all agree we love that about movies, but it's not like Fellini. You know, it's not, it's not, a mo- it's not the bicycle thieves where it's trying to dive into existential questions. You know, it's a movie that's just like Jurassic Park meant to entertain you on a level of just like, uh, hey, popcorn, fun, action, you know, one scene to the next roller coasters. Uh, and yet the reason I bring them both up is because I think they are examples of movies where it's like they're movies where they did put a character arc in there. And I think it matters. I do think it matters if you do things like that, because I think that's what stories are ultimately about, like reflecting change and growth. And uh, if you just go for the sizzle and not the steak, I think you leave people feeling empty and, and you create something less memorable. And I think the reason Die Hard endures is because there are some weird things going on there that, that keep us thinking. And it's not just, you know, a tower heist or whatever, which there's lots of those from that time period, right? But what is it about that one? You know, I think it's the arc. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think character development is one of the things it's so satisfying when we watch a character change in a truly deserved, complicated way. It is so, it is like one of the most satisfying things. It is as exciting as watching something blow up. Isn't it and almost more? That's the thing. It's like, I don't know that they stuck the landing on Jurassic Park, like being completely honest on any level. I think it was a little too, I, I just don't, it wasn't as woven into the tapestry of the film the way that it is in Die Hard. But I, I just think that you, I think you're absolutely right. If you can do that, it almost doesn't matter what the rest of the stuff is. Um, like, like I remember reading in one of these many, it might've been story by Robert McKee. It might've been one of these screenplay screenwriting books that I've consumed over the years. This idea that you want to start your character as far away from where he or she is going to, or it is going to end up as possible. Like, so you can really show us something. Um, I mean, when you're talking about great character arcs, there's so many good ones, but like, uh, I just, even in the course of like, this is one of the best character arcs ever, but as long as we're talking about it, I feel like we have to mention it. The breaking bad character arc. It's hard to execute a character arc on a television show, but Walter White has one of the coolest, craziest, um, character arcs because he makes this massive change but where he lands at the end of the whole series whatever you think about all the winding road in between to fill seasons and seasons of great television he lands at this place where he finally owns the selfishness of his actions i just think that's so cool like they brought it around so nicely like it wasn't just like you there's a version of that arc that's just okay mild-mannered uh science teacher becomes hardened drug dealer like that's a character arc. That's a that's a doozy. But what about like a full 360 where it's like comes back to realizing he only did that because it was self-serving. I just think that's great. Um, now, obviously, Breaking Bad is not passable. It's, it's excellent. Yeah. But. Excellent. Although it could have all been avoided with Medicare for all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, Breaking Bad would never happen in Canada, right? He would get lung cancer and they would be like, OK, get get your treatment for lung cancer. And keep teaching. It's such a great um, modern Western for that reason too. Like I, I could, we could do a one day. We should do a podcast, like a Breaking Bad cast, where we just go through episode by episode and talk about its genius. 
are we at 10 years yet? We could do it as like a 10-year anniversary thing. So that has been the No Film School podcast for this week. Keep your questions coming to ask at nofilmschool.com or obviously on the boards of No Film School. We find questions in both places. I am Charles Hain. Uh, you can check out my web series, Salty Pirate, at saltypirate.tv. Uh, you can check out all of the rest of my work at charleshain.com or follow me on the Insties and the Twitters. And I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. Uh, you can read about everything we spoke about today and more at nofilmschool.com. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at no film school, like us on Facebook, like subscribe, rate the podcast, leave a comment, let us know what you think. Uh, let us know, please answer the question for us too. I don't, maybe there's a better version of the answer. I'm sure there's great versions, um, about complex character arcs in passable films, uh, thread that needle, will you? And, uh, make sure to check out, um, we've got some very exciting reviews coming in. One from Charles that I know he's working on, and I'm really excited for that to launch. And also, next week, only a matter of a few days from when you listen to this, it'll be Horror Week at NoFilmSchool.com, and we are going to dive deep into the genre, the sub-genres, the, sub the how-tos, the what's, the lists, all of it. We'll have some cool interviews and some cool content all about horror. It's scary how much we're going to talk about horror. Sorry, I had to do that because I'm a dad. So we're going to be spoopy next week <laughs> on the podcast? Oh, yeah. Yes, for sure. Well, we'll find some way. Yes. Thanks for listening. 